So hey everybody, this is amazing. This is Eric Mann, out of my depression, in the studio. Thanks to Mary Reich for suggesting this. As she said, it's pretty simple. You go in, it's totally barren. Just walk into the, all the surfaces have been cleaned. I have my chartreuse uh, gardening gloves on. I got my mask on, just trying to take it off a little bit to talk. We're excited. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, the producer and co-host of the show. Hey, Channing, how you been? Pretty good. Glad to be back in studio. I also have my latex gloves and <laughs> African print mask as well. Yeah, yours, yours, that's a nice mask. Um, we have lots to talk to you about, including the, um, oh my God, including the uh, strategy in Seoul, revolutionary organizing, yeah, thank you. I, I, thank you. The Strategy in Seoul, Thursday night, Revolutionary Organizers Film Club. You tell them the rest. So we've been talking about this film club for the longest, and many of you guys have also informally have been a part of the film club on Voices from the Front Lines because, as you know, we review a lot of films and we love films. And the Strategy Center is try is working to figure out our momentum during the quarantine. And so this film club is going to be so important to really help rebuild the momentum of the Strategy Center. So we'll be viewing a film called The Revolutionary Revolution Will Be Strategized. It's a new documentary about the 30 years of work of the Strategy Center, and it features Eric, myself, Barbara, Gil Cedillo, Melina Abdullah, Bridget Amaya, Martine Hernandez, and all of our students, many more. Um, and it'll be an exciting experience via Zoom where we'll watch the film. There'll be an introduction to the film. And then we'll talk about the film afterwards. And the film was done by a filmmaker named Lucas Yaris. Uh, it's interesting. There was a film done about my work, our work, in 1982, which is... Uh, Tell you, when I go through my life, the dates are like, what? I was there then, I was there then. So 1982, 1983, a wonderful filmmaker named Michael Goldman, M-I-C-H-A-L, Goldman, who's done some great films. He just did a, a very impressive film about Nasser, Kamal Abdul Nasser from Egypt, maybe three years ago in the Pan-African Film Festival. 
And she did this film working with me, and we won Best Labor Film in the American Film Festival in New York. I went to receive the award, which is cool. So I called Mikko and said, hey, I want to do a real film about the 30th anniversary, not a, well, not, I don't have to say not, a real film that would be capturing the politics of the strategy center at 30. She said, I have somebody exactly in mind, but let me call him and see if he's interested. And out of that came the relationship with Lucas Yoris, who really did a wonderful, wonderful job. And then out of that came Victoria, the film, the uh, camera person, and we have a film. It was shown on the 30th anniversary, which is about December 6th, December 7th, December 8th of last year. But now it's it's been even cleaned up a little bit more, and we have all this, the titles right. So its launch is this Thursday at 7, but you have to register to be able to go to this essentially webinar first day of a film festival. So if they're on the voices list, they got the invitation. Is that right? That is absolutely right. And if you're not and you're just tuning in, we love you. Thank you. <laughs> Listen again next week. And you can go to thestrategycenter.org, and you'll be the biggest thing right on the front page. Okay. So you have to register before you get on. And um, we hope to see you Thursday night at 7. So then before – so today's show is going to be about – I, I say my friend, even though he barely knows me, but we did a terrific conversation together, is the great and late uh, Julian Bond – and the reason that provoked, prompted this show is because I just finished, uh, again, with my wife, Leanne, seeing a very important documentary about John Lewis, the late John Lewis, called Good Trouble, about his idea of people should organize and cause trouble. John Lewis, tremendously important figure in the civil rights movement. And in reasons I'm going to explain when I frame the show in a little bit, we're going to listen to a 30-minute conversation with Julian Bond. So if I get that done in four minutes, five minutes, that'll get us to, to about uh, 3.35, 3.40. And then we'd love you to go on to the phone lines, 818-985-5735. Sometimes when Channing and I are doing the show remotely, we realize there's no human contact. And the way that we gel, uh, grass, if anybody's listening, of course, is through our callers who have been amazing. So callers, 818-985-5735. You can queue up around 3.30 if that's okay. And around 3.40, we'll try to get to as many as you. And we hope there are enough of you to keep going. I'm going to read a letter I got before, and then I'm going to frame the thing with Julian Bond, which is I was a little maudlin and depressed the other day. Me and Channing were doing the show, and I said, gee, nobody's listening. We don't get calls, which is true a lot. We don't get emails. So I said, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to do the show anymore because you people don't like me and nobody's paying attention to me and I'm going to take my ball and go home. And several people were wonderful and wrote me some letters. So here's one I want to read, which is just very cool. And yes, folks, send us letters, eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and channing at thestrategycenter.org. So here it goes. It says, hi, Channing. I'm writing because of Eric's request on Voices from the Frontlines today. Two people in my household listen to the program every time there's a broadcast. We donate to KPFK when we're able. We're extremely low income and barely surviving financial. With massive credit card 
medical debt, a 21-year-old car that needs expensive repairs. Due to the fact that we will be so incredibly low-income for so long, we're extremely socially isolated. Even so, we do whatever advocacy we can. We've been journeying with black death bro prisoners and their family members for a decade and one half, and we're very well acquainted with the San Francisco Bayview, parenthesis, go on our site, because there's a wonderful magazine, San Francisco Bayview, that needs your help. It's in danger of going out, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, and Channing and I did a really wonderful show. If you go on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com, you can just download the previous shows. And there's one about, which we'll explain. So then it says, I've spoken with Mary R. dozens of times in the past decade or so on behalf of one of her favorite contributors, Timothy James Young. Mary has published scores of Tim's poems and essays over many years. You, You might be able to find one of Tim's poems, Star of the Beast, in the archive at sfbayview.com. And if you can, it's well worth the effort. So we've got to put it on the list to get that poem to make sure I read it. I'm an ex-nun, a Matthew 25 red-letter Catholic, a huge fan of Daniel and Philip Berrigan. Jesuit Father Dan Berrigan once said that we good people should try to stay on the planet as long as possible. In order to do as much good as possible, I concur. I love radio. I got my FCC license, including the Element 9 broadcast endorsement when I was 15 years old. I had planned to attend Pasadena City College and then embark upon a career as a voiceover artist when life took me in a different direction. I share all this in order to explain that I understand how much preparation and time goes into voices from the front lines. For any of us who seek to do good in this world, the real world of Christ, the real work of Christ, it's a justice issue to think carefully and discern what will be the very best use of our time. That said, my housemate and I will keep listening to you and Eric and your endeavors in our heartfelt, intense prayers. I cannot in good conscience beg you to keep the program going, even though it will personally be a significant loss for Edward Wood my housemate, soulmate, and me, if you stop broadcasting. Your time is incredibly valuable. Only you and Eric are in the position of making a decision about how to proceed. Whatever you choose, Ed and I will support your choice. There's a big, broken, demonically unjust world around all of us. Each of us must follow our own enlightened consciousness to decide conscience, to decide how we can best add to the good, trying to bring justice and peace. Please know that you and Eric and your work are valued by some people and that no matter what your ultimate decision about the program is, Ed and I will always honor and appreciate the good that you've done and will choose to. By the way, thank you so much for trying to help San Francisco Bayview to carry on despite Mary's devastating health crisis. Best regards with gratitude, Suze, and I think the last name is Sellover. Um... Well, Susie, uh, you and Ed, uh, that ends my self-pity for at least a year. <laughs> I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read this letter if I get depressed. And, uh, but you know, listeners, in a serious way, um, this is what I think is fair to expect from people. I expect a lot because I give a lot. And here's a person who's living, you know, in complete poverty, probably comes out of the Catholic, not probably, comes out of the Catholic worker tradition of 
self-sacrifice and devotion to the cause. What a pleasure. Uh, just can't thank you enough for this call, for this letter. So if you'd like to write to us, um, Eric at Voices from the Frontlines and chanting at thestrategycenter.org. Okay, now my friend Julian Bond. Um, I've always had ambivalent feelings about John Lewis, but obviously very, very positive the John Lewis I knew because I was with the Congress of Racial Equality in the North, the John Lewis who gave a speech at the March on Washington that really called for, like Sherman's march through the South and march into Atlanta, the North coming into the South to basically destroy slavery. When I was in Washington, D.C., in the fall of 1964, when I started working with CORE, and, uh, you know, the March on Washington had been in August 1963. This is 65. I got a, a pamphlet from SNCC saying the speech that John Lewis was not allowed to give at the March on Washington. I went, what? And it showed the speech he wanted to give that was far more militant, far more radical than the very good speech he already gave. But it showed how the Democratic Party worried about the impact on President Kennedy, toned down his speech. It wasn't like I couldn't understand it, but I went, oh my God, so I get it. The Democratic Party still controls the civil rights movement to some degree and tells people at a march on Washington what they can and cannot say. And Bayard Rustin, who was revered by many people, not me, and who, because he's gay and he, he did some very good things, was in fact a hatchet man for the Democratic Party. And he put the pressure on John Lewis to tone down the speech. Now, I can go into a long story because there may be some relevance to doing that. It's not like you can just say whatever you want. The purpose of the March on Washington was to win the Voting Rights Act. I'm sorry, to win the Civil Rights Act. But if you follow me, the point was SNCC wanted us to know that there was a speech he was not allowed to give. That's how they told it to us. Later in his book, John Lewis tells the story differently, and I won't go into that, but you should read it. But here's the point. In the film, Good Trouble, the filmmakers, to give them credit, show a very painful experience where Julian Bond who had been the communications director of SNCC, a founder of SNCC along with John Lewis, who had been in the, Calif in the, uh, been in the Georgia state legislature, had been elected in 65, 66, 66. Each time they threw him out because he was against the war in Vietnam until it took the Supreme Court to demand that he be seated. Everybody assumed that this, the new black seat that was created would be for Julian Bond because he was already in the state legislature and he had fought for that. Now, John Lewis had every right to run for that seat. That's not the point. But in the film, there's a very painful scene where John Lewis, where Julian Bond turns to John Lewis and said, how in the world are you asking me to take a drug test? I've been your friend for 25 years. We are against drug tests. But how could you do this to me? We put our lives on the line. That's important to know that John Lewis did ask Julian Bond to take a drug test. The second thing they have a scene afterwards when 
John Lewis wins and Julian Bond loses. And they say to Julian Bond, well, how do you feel about this? He says, well, I hope time will heal all wounds. But let's be very clear. I won 60% of the black vote. And John Lewis won 40% of the black vote. The reason he is in Congress and I am not is he got 80% of the white vote. And I got only 20% of the white vote. So essentially, it was the white, moderate to racist whites in Atlanta who did not want Julian Bond to be elected, who voted for John Lewis as the antidote to Julian Bond. That is said in the film, so you should check it out. John Lewis, A Life Well-Led. It's a long struggle. It's a black united front. It's a black, Latinx, third world united front, including white people, including Asians. We have our differences. But on this day that John Lewis is getting all the respect that he deserves, and I mean that, all the attention he deserves, I think it would be also important to elevate the life of Julian Bond, which is what I'm choosing to do, not instead of John Lewis, but as well as John Lewis. And yes, the person whose politics, that's who I would have voted for but I, if, if I was in Atlanta, Julian Bond. Now, just a, more, a little more framing. Um, in, 19, in 2014, right after the 25th anniversary of the Strategy Center, I went to um, Jackson, Mississippi, along with Julian... I was Lamb. Lamb, not Bond. Julian Lamb, a great guy who was with the Strategy Center. I was there with... Um, well, I'm losing it. William Sovereign and Catherine Murphy, who's a great filmmaker. Catherine hooked up the whole thing and we spent about a week together filming and interviewing about 12 leaders of the civil rights movement 50 years after Freedom Summer. This is my interview and conversation with Julian Bond, who sadly died a year later. And as he came to the interview, he had his wife with him, and he did look frail. I remember she had him, she, he was on her arm. Wow. And I saw that and I thought, wow, as you see, his mind was 100%, but something was going on. So here is the great Julian Bond. For the young people don't know him or the older people don't know him, check him out, a truly great man. Go to 818-985-5735 and let's listen to this conversation. Let's honor John Lewis and let's honor Julian Bond. Well, hey, everybody. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. We're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Every single conversation I've had has changed my views of things, have influenced me in the present. There's very little nostalgia here. There are people who are continuing to do work, continuing to think, and trying to talk about, obviously, a pivotal experience for an entire generation. But most of the people here on the 50th anniversary are on the 50th anniversary of their organizing. So in that context, we're really happy to have Julian Bond with us, who's been a very important figure in the civil rights, black liberation, progressive movement. He was obviously one of the leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which we'll talk about. He was elected to the Georgia State Legislature and denied admission, and that became a very important co-celebra. You might not think that people of those politics would run for office. And then he's moved through many, many different incarnations. And I believe you were chairman of the board of the NACP. And on the 
50th anniversary of SNCC, I think he gave a really terrific no, speech. Thank you. Worked hard on that. It was a very thoughtful effort at the struggle of black people and where are they now. So in that context, Julian Bond, really nice to be with you. Well, good to be here. Thank you for this. What was the pivotal moment in your life when you went from believing in things to thinking you had a real obligation to act? Well, it must have been in 1960 when a student approached me in a cafe in Atlanta and held up a newspaper to me and said, have you seen this? I thought he was talking about, do you read the paper? But he was talking about an article about the Greensboro sit-in and prompted me to join him in repeating that here in Atlanta. And that's that's when I took my first big step. So that was quick. Yeah. You saw a picture and you organized a sit-in. Right, exactly. How were you treated? Pretty well. Atlanta was a relatively moderate place in race relations. You got outside the city, you're in real trouble, but right. the, within the city limits, it was okay. So the police acted as you want policemen to, nothing really harmful, but it was a good introduction to activism for me. Now, I make a distinction between activism and organizing because to me, activism is an act of participation. Organization becomes a long-term commitment and actually building an institution. When did you think you made the transition from seeing yourself as an activist to someone who wanted to build an institution like SNCC. Shortly after the incident I just told you about, and it's interesting because I got involved in the sit-in demonstrations believing that would be a relatively short-lived act process. Right, right. But I joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee believing that would be relatively short-lived, but longer than the sit-ins. Right. And didn't think it would last forever for the rest of my life, and of course it didn't, uh, but thought that would be a little longer lasting. Then I joined the NAACP, which was already ancient at that time, and is over 109 years old now. Uh, so that was a, another example of longevity with an organization. And uh, I'm not really associated with any organization right now, but still I'm doing many of the things I was doing in those other organizations. Well, let's go back to relationships with some pivotal fi figures, okay? Ella Baker. Ella Baker, I was thinking about her today. We saw a picture of her after the screen when we were talking about those who passed away. Ella Baker lived in an apartment building in Atlanta called the Walla Haji. It was named after the people who built it, whose names were Wallace and Hodges, hence Walla Haji. And she had a very small apartment there. And I remember visiting her in her apartment and her taking out a, I think, a quart of uh, bourbon which was welcome to me at the time. I was drinking bourbon at the time. Uh, and she was just a remarkable person. And peculiarly, or maybe not peculiarly, I could never call her Ella. Many of the women who worked for SNCC called her Ella, but I called her Miss Baker. She was always Miss Baker to me, and she always will be Miss Baker to me. And she was such an expert at saying to you, not do this, but have you thought of doing this? And there's a great difference between these two things. And she was just a master at it. Well, even though it's an archetypical story, it is very important that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came together as just a coordinating committee at first. Of that, there were a lot of sit-ins, right. and wouldn't it be good if we sort of all got together and had a mutual strategy, right? Because she understood, Ella Baker understood that we might not have the experience, might not have the thought to do this in an organized way. Or we might have, but if we didn't, wouldn't it be better if we develop it one, develop ourselves? And can't you develop it yourselves? She never said do this or do that. She always said, don't you think you might do this? And the story is that she encouraged Dr. King to not make this an adjunct 
of SCLC. Right. And the students, she also encouraged young people not to not to become an adjunct of SCLC or the NAACP right. or Core. the Racial Equality or any of these organizations. Why don't you make one of your own? And we made one of our own. Amazing contribution to history, right? Yeah. Um, James Foreman. I can't remember when I met Foreman for the very first time, but I met him when he was fresh from Monroe, North Carolina, where he'd been to talk to Robert Williams, the NAACP president, who yeah. returned Klan fire with black fire. Um, and he was fresh from that and came to Atlanta to meet people in this new phenomenon called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And very quickly we understood that in part because of his age, he was older than we were, and part because of his wisdom, that he'd make a great director of this organization, and we prevailed on him to take it, and bam, there he was. He came out of the service? Yes, he came out of the service, and I think his service period was an example of building for him, learning new things for him in ways we did not have. Almost none of us had been in the service, and almost none of us went in the service. I never did, but uh, I thought he, this was some training for him that he had that advanced him above the level where we were. I've read some old documents. He did a lot of writing about the theory of organizations and how could SNCC function and gave a lot of attention to the actual building of an yeah. organization. Um, Malcolm X. I never met Malcolm X for longer than a period of, hello, how are you doing? Good to see you. Uh, so I can't say I knew him in any real sense of the word, but I was around him on a couple of occasions and had saw him operate and watched him operate and grew to understand that here's a man who had a, a real idea of, of how to go about things, how to plan, how to, how to go from here to there in a way that I think young, younger people didn't quite know. Uh, so he was just such a remarkable man. It was a thrill to be around him. And one of the great things I remember about him is him saying to a crowd, not to me, but to a crowd, he said, man, those people in the Southern Movement made me look funny. He said, they're really onto something. So, you know, you appreciate that kind of uh, pat on the back. Like another one we got from <laughs> President Kennedy. You get this on the White House t tapes. He's talking to his advisors during the Birmingham campaign, complaining about something that happened in, in Birmingham the night before. And he says, those snake people are sons of bitches. I love that. That's right. That's one of the best compliments. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. I, again, I, I did know Ms. Hamer more than I knew Malcolm X. She was just such a pleasant person such an outgoing person who didn't have much formal education, but was so outreaching, the sort of person you felt you could be with, you could be close to, you could learn from her, you could be a part of her. She was just remarkable in that way. She was open to you. That was her genius, I think. And then another one of her geniuses was laying out very pithy formulations that you would remember and act on. Yes, indeed. You know, like she came to the Newark Community Union Project and we had a second floor office, and she walked in and she said, if I come back next year and you don't have a storefront, you'll never see me again. <laughs> and we got a storefront. I mean, yeah. she said, well, how are you expecting people to climb stairs? And we hadn't thought of it, you know. Yeah. She wasn't the only person. Then she came in and gave a three-hour presentation about her negotiations with Walter Ruther, mm -hmm. Bayard Rustin, even King, mm -hmm. Humphrey. And, of course, the line was, they literally, Bayard Rustin, pointed to Humphrey and said, Miss Hamer, if you take the compromise, Hubert Humphrey could be vice president of the United States. And she said, with all due respect, I didn't come up all the way from Mississippi to make you vice president of the United States. I thought you wanted to be vice president of the United States to seat the people from Mississippi. Yeah. And then she turned to us and said, 
there's two lessons here. One, compromise is not a bad word. But one party wins the compromise and one party loses. And if they offered us a winning compromise, I would have taken it. Number two, never sign on to anything that you cannot take to your base in good conscience because you are representing people. And if you come back and say, I didn't get it, they don't mind. But if you said, I gave it away, you'll be in big, big trouble. Exactly so. And that's what I teach. It's, I mean, it's totally changed my understanding of organizing. And I've been in situations, in negotiations, where I realized, no, we're going to bring it back to the group. And if the group doesn't want it, we're not going to do it. Yeah. Did you play an active role in the MFTP? No, not really, because of James Foreman. This is a funny story. We had, uh, I don't know if the order was this hurt, but Snick took a trip to Africa, mm. and I went, and uh, the trip to Guinea. And some people, John Lewis and Don Harris, went further than right. other African states. But I was with the group that only went to Guinea and then went to Paris and then came back to the States. That was, I think, just before the convention in Atlantic City. And so Foreman told me I couldn't go because I had gone to Africa. And a little while I'm later, sorry. I realized that he went to Africa. <laughs> so why couldn't I go, too? No. That sounds like James Foreman, too. Let's talk about your uh, candidacy for the legislature of Georgia. I think one of the things that's fascinating about that is people didn't understand that we had a pretty multifaceted understanding of what we were doing. We were not just protesters. We had a strategy. And obviously, they were seen as an opportunity to get you elected. I think most of our listeners and viewers don't even know this story. So how did this happen? This came about because a federal court had reapportioned the Georgia legislature. Georgia had a most malapportioned legislature of all the states in the United States. And it meant that rural areas had enormous power. Urban areas where the population was had relatively little power. And so a court order reapportioned the legislature. And I found myself living in the middle of one of these new districts of equal size with other districts. And it meant that black people would be elected to the House of Representatives in Georgia for the first time since Reconstruction, wow. as long ago as that. So I ran for one of these districts, and I won. A friend of mine, uh, Ben Brown, who sadly has died, uh, ran in the adjacent district. Uh, we were very close, and he won his, and I won mine. And we were all set to take our seats. Uh, we knew that we would meet hostility by white legislators who didn't want black people in the legislature. But we didn't expect any trouble about this, just some reaction. But then, just before we were to take our seats, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee issued an anti-war statement, which if I told you about it today, you'd say, oh, people say that all the time now. Right, right. But then it sounded radical and extreme, and it caused a great deal of hoorah in the general population, and the legislators were just outraged that we would dare to have opinions about foreign policies, and the opinions would be contrary to theirs. So as the date for my uh, taking my seat arrived, the opposition began to bubble and rise up, and when the day for me to take my seat came, legislators-to-be decided to put me out of the legislature. They declared my seat vacant and called for a new election. And I ran for in that election, and I won that election, and they called me out of the legislature again. I ran again for a third time, and in the interim, I filed a lawsuit, uh, and it was heard by a three-judge federal court, and the two judges appointed by President Kennedy voted against me, and the judge appointed by President Nixon voted for me. Wow. Because this was just at the time when the Republican Party was in the middle of some transition, and the Democratic Party was in the middle of some transition, too. At any rate, I appealed the decision to the Supreme Court, and I had never been to the Supreme Court, so I went up to hear my case being argued. And I found myself sitting in the front row of the spectator seats next to uh, Victor Rabinowitz, 
who was my lawyer. Oh, really? His law partner was Leonard Boudin. Oh. He was arguing the case for me. And so I'm sitting next to Victor Rabinowitz and listening to the Attorney General of Georgia argue that they had a right to throw me out, that I had said things that were contrary to, to American public opinion and therefore I ought to be thrown out of the legislature. And something remarkable happened. I'd never been to the Supreme Court before, and I didn't understand that the justices would interfere right. with lawyers. And Justice Byron White, oh, well. uh, who was well known as Wizard White, because he was the only Supreme Court justice who played for the NFL. That's right. And he, he said to the Attorney General, to his argument, he says, is that all you have? He said, that's all you have? You come all this way and that's all you have? <laughs> so I hunched uh, Victor Rabinowitz. I said, we're winning now, aren't we? He said, yes, you are. And we won nine to nothing. Nine to nothing. Wow. Wow. I mean, I just think I could listen to this every day. <clears throat> just, you're listening to Eric Mann. Hold on. You're listening to Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. I'm here with Channing Martinez. We'd love you to call in at 818-985-5735. 818-985-5735. You're listening to this conversation with the late Julian Bond. Uh, just a minute to comment on that. He, so he goes to the Supreme Court. He doesn't quite say, maybe I'll finish afterwards. And both of his lawyers were communist Victor Boudin. Um, I'm sorry, Victor Rabinowitz and Leonard Boudin, who were the kind of radical revolutionary attorneys at the time. And I'm just going to let Julian Bond keep telling his story. But please call in if you want to talk to 818-985-5735. Channing and I would love to know that you're on the lines. And this interview will be over in about eight or nine minutes, and we'd love to hear from you. But if you could queue up now so we know there are people calling in, that would be great. 818-985-5735. You're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. Thank you. Let's keep going, please. Well, it's very important to know that that's a beautiful story, and it's also important that Victor Rabinowitz, is a story unto himself. Yes, Leonard yes. Boudin, you had gold. You had two of the greatest civil rights lawyers, yeah. most brilliant. So when you're just you know, dropping ACLU, the name, ACLU wouldn't support me, wouldn't defend me because I had them. <laughs> you know, this well, would be the people control, helping my civil liberties. But I didn't apparently didn't have the civil liberties to choose a lawyer of my own choosing. Or lawyers that were closer to the Communist Party. Yes, right. Bill Kunstler and Arthur Conoy, the same, were the two greatest lawyers I knew at the yeah. time, but. You're very fortunate to have Victor Rabinowitz and Leonard Boudin, who were only two of the truly greatest civil rights lawyers in the United States at the time. Oh, yeah, they are just fabulous. I couldn't have chosen anybody as good as they were. And I want to go back a step about what when you ran in the district, because you won three times, you know, as they always say, let's keep running the election until we get it right. You know? yeah. <laughs> right? So what did you talk to the people about in this predominantly black district? Well, first I laid out a platform, and then I went around to them asking them how they liked my platform and what I could change in my platform, do better, do worse, or whatever. And I can't remember it all, it's been so long ago, but one thing was to increase the minimum wage in Georgia to, I think, a dollar fifty, which is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, but anyway, it was a fairly well thought out and vetted campaign platform, vetted with my constituents. I asked them what they want. What do you think about this? Is this okay? Is this a good idea? Right. Do you like that? Or so on. And they were just astounded because they had never had somebody ask them these questions before. 
they had never elected a legislator from this district, never happened before, a district this small, and whomever they had had before in the larger district that preceded my district, they never had anybody ask them what they wanted. So I think it was an innovation for them as it was for me. So that's what I, that's the way I campaigned. Well, at the time, we were very moved by the concept of participatory democracy, mm -hmm. right? And I was organizing in Newark and, and SNCC. I think we had a vision of a revolutionary democracy yeah. in which the actual people at the grassroots would be asked for once. And, I, and then the question was, could the people, after they're asked, get enough power to win? So I want to jump in a funny way after the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, because I'm very interested in this period of all the choices that people made after the MSDP. Uh, obviously, Stokely moved to the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and, which I thought was pretty exciting, to, which people don't know, to build an actual base on the grounds. But over a year, they were John Hewitt. Other people moved in more, quote, revolutionary directions. Other people moved in more nationalist directions. Other people moved to reform the Democratic Party and say, no, it's not automatically the end of this conversation. First, what of those past, what were you thinking at the time? And it helped me, since I think you and I are always trying to keep everybody in one, why can't we all get along, Paul? Yeah. Is it me? Like, yeah. I understand this difference, yeah. and, but is this really what we're going to break up over? So where were you, and then what were your efforts to try to build a broader civil rights black movement at the time? I didn't try to build the Democratic Party in a different direction. I wish now I had. I'd done something to create a political party of some kind with some relevance to what people really needed and what they wanted, but I didn't do that. I ran every two years as a Democrat. I won elections, one after the other, for 20 years. Uh, worked in the House, got elected to the State House, got elected to the State Senate. Uh, so that's what I did. Uh, and I didn't, I'm sorry to say, do as much as I could have done or should have done in Georgia itself. Instead, I traveled all over the country. I got invitations to speak here and there and someplace else. After the Chicago Political Democratic Party convention, I began to be inundated with invitations to go here and there and talk about things. And I generally talked about the war, had an anti-war attitude and, and argued against the war, and talked about race relations and, and what the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee could do, and what my listeners could do, what people could do themselves in their own neighborhoods, their own community. So that's why I spent almost the next, say, 20 odd years is doing that. Well, one of the things that I think, again, in terms of, I mean, both I've lived this history, but then I just study history every day, every yeah. day, including, of course, way, way back history. But I don't think people, again, understand the significance of a civil rights movement that took a, such a militant stand against the war. Yeah, no. And that from when SNCC came out with Hell No, We Won't Go, mm. that has such a profound influence. I think that was the first time I consciously became anti-war. Then there was the SDS march on Washington in April of 65. There was Muhammad Ali's amazing campaign. There was King's campaign. But every one of those was met with such repression from mm -hmm. King People don't realize that Ali was sentenced to five years in prison for draft evasion. So let's talk about that, the explosive intersection of the war and the civil rights, and those who are telling us, no, no, those are two separate issues. You know, it's interesting that today I met a man who had put on the first moratorium, and that meant something special to me because I met my wife-to-be at the first moratorium. So, and this guy who put on the first and second moratoriums told me an interesting history of the time between the first and the second. Between the first, the 
idea of the moratorium was simply to say there are many, many Americans who are against the war and they want it stopped. And they'd be welcoming if this were happening. This is Nixon who was president of the United States. From the first moratorium to the second moratorium, the repression just grew and grew and grew. Agnew was unleashed and began to attack the student protesters and so on in a vituperative way, the way he'd not done so before. And I didn't realize this. This guy's telling me this. Uh, and something else happened that showed the repression echoing up and uh, just showed what the war machine would do, the horrors it would do. So I had not understood this history before. It was just interesting to have him tell it to me. Uh, made me understand what was happening around me in a way I had not before. Well, in Bearing the Cross by David Gerald is just the whole section of what happened after the Vincent Harding, Martin Luther King speech at the Riverside. It was, I believe, 1967. The extent of the attacks on King after he took the war position. A dramatic loss of money, dramatic loss of influence, and he was shocked. But he sort of knew it was coming. So I just want to say that I don't think a lot of white people understand that so much of the anti-war movement was black. Yeah. And so much of the anti-war energy came out of what was perceived as the civil rights movement. What brought you to the NAACP? Well, I had, uh, SNCC had disappeared. Right. We think destroyed by the federal government. And there seemed to be no alternative to it. And I looked at the NAACP because in Atlanta, at the time, the NAACP was a vibrant, strong organization, a neighborhood-based organization, active in this, that, and the other things, on the march all the time. And it seemed to be the last man standing. And I said, I want to be a part of that. I joined the NAACP, but I would not done much with the NAACP as a member, but only active in the sense that I paid my dues. I became engaged in it. I got elected chairman of the local NAACP. Then I got elected to the board of directors of the NAACP. I had a fight with the incumbent board chairman. He managed to throw me out of the NAACP. I fought back. Wait a minute, do you have a, a problem of getting thrown out of things? Yes. <laughs> anyway, he, he threw me out of the NAACP. Right. Uh, where was it? Oh, so anyway, so then I got elected chairman of the board, and I served as chairman of the board for 11 years. One of the things that to me is very interesting, again, about reading history is that in our, our meaning 64 to 68 experience, I think it's fair to say that SNCC and CORE, where I came from, we saw the NACP as a big obstacle. I saw it as a big obstacle, too, when right. I was young. Right. But I grew to understand it's sturdy, it's here, it's, if you go over here, it's really great. If you go over there, it's not so great. This one is wonderful, this one is not so. Well, the thing I, I understood the most, because I think Roy Wilkins was a very destructive force in history, is just my own opinion, mm -hmm. but when I read I've Got the Light of Freedom by Charles Payne, right. I was shocked to understand that the NACP had been the bulwark of the most deep south repressive areas, Amzie Moore, and people yes, had been right. building these NAACP chapters from the 30s and 40s had been facing lynching, and they had been sometimes armed. I mean, I changed my opinion of this, what I'm saying is yes. I said, you know, Me too. I said, you know, Eric, you had this little four-year window, but you didn't understand this history, right? Do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. One question I wanted to ask you is that well, um, we have a few more minutes on that, but I want to make sure we go to the phone since we asked people. Uh, we're going to have that up on, we'll play. The, we'll be able to play the whole thing on the website, right? Yes, we can. We'll figure out how to, D'Angelo, thank you. Uh, I want to make sure we go to the phones. I mean, the, the last thing I just wanted to say is, in listening to myself as a so-called interviewer, I 
try to be as brief as I could with him most of the time. There was one story I thought was important, but I'm glad whether I edited myself out, which I probably did, I was able to just ask a clean question and let him talk. But the actual connection between the two of us that day was very wonderful. And Julian, I miss you. You're very, very loved. And uh, John Lewis, we miss you. And Reverend C.T. Vivian, we miss you. And uh, for those of us who are still here, who are veterans of the civil rights movement, it's another thing I realized. Send me an email at eric at Voices from the Frontlines. Let's figure out if we can just do some kind of an informal get-together of veterans of the civil rights movement in L.A. And, uh, you know, I also want to thank um, the website called CRM Vets, that crmvet.org, on which I'm one of thousands of participants. Uh, I want to thank Bruce, who runs it. Go online and, and help that organization as well. And with that, I'm going to listen to Louie in Riverside, a real human being. Hey, Louie, what's happening? Hello. Well, you're here. Okay, yes. I'm a member of the uh, the organization that you just mentioned also, based in Northern California. But what I wanted to, uh, um, to uh, I guess, share is the fact that I, in, I guess it was February 67, I went to uh, Smith headquarters in Atlanta, and uh, the first person to greet me was Julian Bond. Now, it's a funny thing. I was a member of RAM. You might know that organization. Sure. And I was on my way. The to, Revolutionary Action Movement. That's correct. And I was on my way to China at that time <clears throat> to get some uh, uh, relevant training. And uh, I was looking for my um, fiancé, who had, who had been in Atlanta for a few months while I was out of the country and came back in. And so... Julian Bond was, uh, he greeted me very hospitably and um, uh, gave me information where I could find her. But uh, at that time, we had a somewhat less than charitable opinion of SNCC. But uh, I have to say that uh, when SNCC came out against the war, it really was a tremendous boost, especially in the black community, because it represented a frontline group. Uh, an organizational group that gave credence to our earlier opposition. You know, we weren't, we felt that even though we were, for, you know, we were against the system, we thought that we were in the woods when it came to, you know, for U.S. foreign policy. So uh, I, I would be uh, very interested in uh, seeing the full interview, hearing the full interview when it's available. Louis, very Thank nice very to much. hear from you. A great story. Um, if you would send me an email at Eric at Voices from the Frontlines, I'd like to continue the conversation because, uh, as you were saying, the fact that Ram did not have such a high opinion of SNCC is one of the problems we have been at today. It's not like it's over. The the groups need, need to have a better appreciation of each other. I tried to say in the show I truly have great appreciation for John Lewis and great appreciation for, for Julian Bond. And the goal was to elevate Julian at a time when John was getting all this uh, legitimate attention to also understand the exactly. intersection of these two people. Uh, can we? I'd love to talk to you further. Uh, will you send okay. me? Okay. I, I will send you an email. All right. I would like that a lot, Louis, and we'll stay in touch, okay? Thank you. All right. Wonderful to hear from you. Bill and Lake Elsinore, you're on with Eric Mann and Chenny Eric. Martinez, you're on Voices. From the front lines, nice to hear a human voice. Eric? Yes. Are you there? Yes, I okay. am. I want to I got a deep debt of, a debt of gratitude 
I want to thank you for your tireless effort and your, your decades now of hard work and struggle. It's, I know how tough it can be and thankless and tiring, but that's a piece of history you just shared with us. That is a true piece of history, and it's wonderful. And that's a milestone and a good indicator of all the successful um, trials, tribulations you went through. And uh, just thank you for your tireless effort. Well, you do a wonderful job. And I'm sure the family and the friends, when you got into it first, at first, thought you were nuts. Like, I uh, thought my nephew was nuts going into the Peace Corps, and it made a wonderful person of him. But in your case, it's a piece of history. I'll stand forever. Thank you. Well, that means a lot. And I'll tell you that I do. Uh, my daughter was talking about this later. I mean, I have a lot of incarnations. And I haven't been focusing enough on myself as a veteran of the civil rights movement. Uh, that's for another story, but Bill, I really appreciate what you said. I mean, to be clear, two things. Uh, one, my family was thrilled, I'm happy to say. My father was a socialist. My grandmother was a socialist. My grandmother helped to build the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. My mom was a ferocious anti-fascist. And they were proud that I actually uh, joined an organization and the other thing I want to just say is in, in a much longer conversation is I think all the time that I was accepted into the Congress of Racial Equality. I didn't join it because you couldn't, you could join it as a member, but they hired me as a field secretary in Harlem in the Northeast. And everything I am is because of them. And as uh, Louis said, you show up at the SNCC office and there's Julian Bond and he welcomes you. And you come to our office, and there's Channing Martinez, and there's Eric Mann, and there's Barbara Hall, and we just, we're in the office, and you come in, and we welcome you. That's what civil rights organizers do. That was one of the coolest things. James Foreman, who, I had 25 people say that every time you saw James Foreman, he was sweeping the floor. Uh, <laughs> he was, because he really came from more adult, he wanted the office really clean. So somebody really truly said, excuse me, sir, could you tell me where James Foreman is? And he said, you're talking? What do you mean? Oh, I'm sorry, you're sweeping the floor. It couldn't have been James Foreman. So uh, very nice what you just said. And uh, will you stay in touch, Bill? We'd like you to, you know, I know you're calling before, and, and it means a lot that you call. Absolutely. I love the stuff you do. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. Uh, Joe in Highland Park, welcome to Voices from the Front Lines with Eric and Channing. You're on KPFK, 90.7 FM and 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. What's happening, Joe? Uh, okay, uh, yeah, uh, glad, glad to be with you and glad to remember these figures that we had some contact with. Uh, I want to tell you just a short Julian Bond story. Good. In 66, when uh, he was uh, decided to start running for the... Uh, uh, State Assembly in Georgia. He made a made a tour around. Uh, maybe with fundraising or something. I don't know. But uh, um, some friends and I got the word he was going to be giving a talk at the Ambassador Hotel, and uh, and we went down there and heard him. And the part of his speech that I remember the most was he said, "Yeah, it feels unusual." He said, "Be becoming a representative for other people." So what I want you to remember is, if you want to see the person who can represent you best, look in the mirror. And I thought, oh, there's that, there's that spirit, that spirit that that he maintains. So I just wanted to throw that story in. I don't know if you were there, maybe uh, Eric, but uh, uh, there it was. That was here in L.A. 
Well, very cool. And, and these are all wonderful stories, Joe. And, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a course from Channing Martinez, who ran for city council. We're allowed to say that now because he's not running for city council. And he reminds me in some way of Julian Bond in the sense that we want people to come out of the movement. Uh, Julian Bond said, well, you know, always somebody showed me a picture and said, oh, they had a sit-in. Let's go have a sit-in. <laughs> then he said, "Then he said, well, all right, now how to sit and uh, let's join SNCC. Then somebody said, okay, hey, you want to run for legislature? Yeah, I'll run for state legislature. It was understood whether it's sweeping the floor. And yes, I sweep the floor. And so does Channing. Or just helping somebody across the street or going to a bus rider and saying, what can I do to fight for you? Or running for the legislature. We don't have a sense of self-importance like a lot of the other elected officials do. It's just... It's just your job. It's just one of the jobs you do to advance the movement. And and by the way, that's the very that's the very spirit that we need in people who are in positions of uh, so-called uh, community leadership, and that is that they stay in touch, and that every job has dignity. King said, and that they they live it. You know, this is uh, what a, what a treat. Well, thanks for these stories. I'm glad to swap them. I got some other ones too. I'll save them. I'll send you some. I'd like that, um, Eric. Now, listen. This means a lot, Eric. At Voices from the Front Lines, and a lot of us who are still alive and are lucky to be alive. Uh, and with COVID, we're even talking about more crazy stuff. We are obligated to tell these stories. You know, if people think these are old people telling stories, tell them to go to hell. These are this is history. We're trying to tell history. And every single person so far has told these stories. It's told a beautiful story on voices. Well, first, yeah, well, well they're stories that stories that have a point for today. They have a point for today too. It's not just cruising. <laughs> that's uh, that's absolutely, and that's actually what I was about to say. That you know, just listening to that clip was amazing to see, because it's so nuanced. It's not just where did you go in March and how, what, it's like very nuanced. This group, I didn't get along with this group. This group got along with this group. This actually happened, and because that happened, then we did this. And so it's move by move by move of strategy, which I really appreciate. And I did hear that compliment. That is a great compliment. I, I don't even know what to think about yet. <laughs> to be compared to Julian Bond. Um, and, you know, I just, I tend to not think of myself like that. I just get up and do the work. And so, but thank you. And so did he. That's the point. He didn't wake up and say, I'm Julian Bond. He just was up being Julian Bond. That's what I'm saying. It is about elevating you, and also it's a humbling understanding. You know, I was telling somebody, when you work at the Strategy Center, we tell you how to be in charge, and when it, if it means taking out the garbage, then you're in charge of that, and we want you to do a good job. And it's, a, it's as the other brother said, it's a, it's a job with dignity. All jobs have dignity. Uh, Geneva and Long Beach? Hello. And, and I want to make sure we get to Morris and Long Beach, too, and then we'll get to Nancy. Hi, Geneva. Yes, hi. How are you? Nice to hear from you. You're on Voices. Nice to hear your voice. Yes, that's wonderful. I just wanted to uh, say Julian Bond was, uh, he was a giant. Let's put it that yes, way. he was. He was a giant. He, uh, the young kids nowadays are walking in his shoes. So I'm hoping that people remember him because he was such a great man. I just remember him when I was growing up. And I know that uh, people are forgotten so quickly 
but I never want any of our heroes, our 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 giants. We've lost so many of them to be forgotten. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you, and you have a wonderful day. Geneva, I'd like to hear with you also, really, if you would please email me, email me, email me at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. I mean, Julian Bond was a giant, and you know, when I was with Julian on this time, but when I was in CORE and I worked with James Farmer and I worked with George Wiley and Lou Smith and Herb Callender and Joyce Weir, now I'm a Jew, just to, I always want to make that clear, but I didn't think I was equal to them. They were my, they were my, I looked up. I looked up to Dave Dennis. Like they were giants. I was lucky that they would even allow me to be in their presence, and I felt that. I did. And they liked me too, because I knew my place. So, uh, yes, Julian Bond was a giant Geneva, and thank you for everything. We have one minute left. Is that the point? i got to get Morris in Long Beach, and Nancy, I'm going to try to get you on, too. Morris, how you doing, brother? Y'all listen to me. Everybody in the street got a brand-new chatter called Black Lives Matter. Come on, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, get the NBA out of Florida. Get them out of Florida, Eric. Tell them to go to South Korea. Tell them to go to China, Taiwan. That virus is too deep. We ain't going to see nothing on TV with a ball. Get them out of Florida, Eric. Eric, I know you got the contact. Talk to you later. <laughs> Morris, I love it. you always leave us speechless. The famous Martin. Nancy, quick, say hello. I, this is something I did not know about Julian Bond, his fight against the war in Vietnam. I mean, this is so important because very often they try to, they don't play you King's speeches about Vietnam. They don't want you to know about that. And it, that's the trouble with the left today. It's not too many people. Bye, Nancy. I love you. We love you, Nancy. Thanks, D'Angelo. We really appreciate your help. Thank you, Nia Simone. And God bless you, John Lewis, and God bless you, Julian Bond, C.T. Vivian, James Foreman, Dr. King, Malcolm X, Fannie Lou Hamer, Rosa Parks, all of you. God bless you, and we'll do the very best we can to keep your work going. Much more than this, I did my way. mourns the loss of civil rights icon John Lewis and celebrates his lifetime of accomplishments. He gave a voice to the voiceless and reminded each of us the most powerful nonviolent tool is the vote. KPFK encourages you to show respect for John Lewis, an icon of American history, and exercise your hard-fought constitutional right. Vote, vote, vote. Rest in peace, John Lewis. The struggle continues.